Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to our post-daylight savings episode. (laughs) I'm feeling so awake. How about you? It's like I, I feel awake with a slight tinge of chaos. <laughs> I'm just so happy I'm out of the age of parenting where daylight savings just completely destroys my universe. The The kids are old enough now that just a shift of an hour doesn't completely rock my world. So that that is my blessing for today. I'm sending that out into the universe, my gratitude. But this week... I'm on break, and my kids are on spring break, and we're actually flying somewhere. Ooh. Yeah. So I'm excited, but I'm also petrified. You know, I still haven't had corona, and I'm really trying not to have corona. And one of my kids has had it, but one has not. So I'm super nervous, and I spend my time as I'm falling asleep each night strategizing about the best way to get our shit into our seats and like wipe down every surface before they can touch it and put their fingers in their nose. So that's kind of my preoccupation. So I'm simultaneously excited and scared to death. Yeah. (laughs) Just got to get the Lysol wipes real quick. I know. I know. I'm wondering like, do I put socks over their hands? Well, I was going to ask about gloves. <laughs> I mean, it's cold where you live. Like, you could go the mitten route. That's true. And be like, keep these on. We're going to sanitize real quick. And then you can take them off when we're done. Yeah. And if you do what I say, I won't beat you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. It's not booked, but I, I will probably be flying next month. Uh-huh. And I, same thought as someone who hasn't gotten corona it's like oh but I still don't want it right exactly exactly and I'm I'm kind of one of those people who was already wiping everything down on planes even before coronavirus I think I've talked about my my germaphobe tendencies before so it'll be an experience and of course my kids don't have any memory of having flown before even though they have so they're nervous about crashing and my oldest is liking to talk about mortality rates crashes in the ocean versus on land and all kinds of stuff speaking of it brings me to my grievance for the day oh wait one moment before that yes just to get into my like true nihilism and to give a horrible glimpse into me (laughs) I've never been afraid of plane crashes because it's like, well, I'll just be dead. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah, that sucks. I don't want to be dead, but like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm not going to not fly. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, same for me too. It really only kind of changed once I had kids. But I mean, here's a peek into the darkness and nihilism of my soul is like, well... We'll all be on the plane together. So, like, uh, you know, a parent's worst fear is, like, leaving Mm. your kids behind. So it would suck to be my husband because he's not coming. But at least I wouldn't have to endure that pain. (laughs) For me, it's that my sister and brother-in-law can never fly together because I am the person who gets the children (laughs) if something happens to both of them. Yes, that makes sense. Although I would help you. You could move out here with them and we could have a big like sitcom type blended family situation. I thought a lot about it. I mean, it's been like more than a decade since I signed the papers agreeing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, it's like, I could make it work. Like I, I really thought through, I mean, I'm a person who thinks through every scenario is like, it would be tough. It would be very hard, <laughs> but I could make it work. Cause I love those children. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you have your brother, too. You have a village, and it does take a village. Well, and, I mean, this is do with it what you will, but, like, it it is split between me and my mom, but I'm 51%, and she's 49. Mm. So 
she can help and she can take a lot of responsibility, but she can't make any decisions without my approval mm. in this scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of thought went into how how it would be laid out. <laughs> but back to my my grievance of the day. Oh, wait, another interruption. <laughs> It's funny to do, but I did actually have a question, which was, have you ever been in a, in, in an incredibly scary flight situation with like people screaming? Cause I have once. No, no. I mean, I've been in flights where I was close to being the one screaming just because, you know, turbulence, I don't like it, but no, I've never had anything like truly horrifying. It was like out of a movie. It was flying into New Orleans in a thunderstorm. So like lightning popping all around the plane. Uh, And then the air got so rough. It was like we were falling like six to eight feet at a time. It was so violent. And I mean, people were screaming. The person I hadn't like really said a word to for the entire flight, we were like all talking to each other (laughs) and like, where are you from? What what are you going to do on this trip? And then like we landed and everybody clapped like freaks. Wow. Oh my God. (laughs) You survived. Well, there's not enough time for grievances. Should we get into the end? No, because it's too perfect. There's like the <laughs> the other scenario, the other black nihilistic scenario, which is you're in a plane crash, but you don't die. The premise of the amazing show Yellow Jackets, which you still have not seen. Which I will watch. There is a barrier I cannot explain to starting a free trial of Showtime. OMG. That reminds me, though, I should turn off my free trial of Showtime now. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm going to have to keep it because I'll have to watch it again. I can't even remember now. But in my counter grievance, there has been (laughs) something. (laughs) I mean, I say it's a grievance to you, but it's a full-on grievance to myself. Which is the damn app Wordscapes, mm-hmm. which a couple episodes ago you mentioned to me, mm-hmm. and it's so good, isn't it? It's like soothing, and you kind of low key feel like it might be making you smarter, or at least it's not making you dumber. The soothing music mixed with exciting slot machine sounds. <laughs> oh, I turn the music off. <laughs> I listen. This is the only app that I listen with the sound on. (laughs) I haven't been playing for that long. I am on level 475. Are you you in the tournament right now? Yeah, except I've done really terribly. I barely played yesterday because I went, I I was sort of in a a meditative, contemplative (laughs) mood. Um, So I'm... 17th in the tournament unfortunately but last tournament i came in number two Woo! well i got the highest level crown (gasps) in the winter like overall tournament but last week i didn't play that much and i haven't even started it yet this week but my team they require 500 points per tournament or they kick you out so oh yeah it's hardcore but we always get lots of coins. I have 26,000 coins. You want to get me on that team? Yeah, just wait for all the losers to like get cut after this tournament. And then I'll I'll send you the name and you can join my team. We'll be buddies. Okay. It's, a, <laughs> it's an illness that I have now. <laughs> Wordscapes. It's taken over every other sort of like mindless app that I normally spend time on. I mean, the worst part of all of this is I'm not even worried about, like, you know, that it's not maybe the best use of my time or any kind of larger issues related to my addiction to it. I'm worried about getting arthritis in my thumbs. Are your thumbs Mm. suffering? (laughs) Not yet, but I was having (laughs) finger pain a la carpal tunnel to, I think, think my sudoku app from the way that i use my thumb and hold it 
I was like, do I need a stylist? (laughs) What is wrong with me? In 20 years, all of the, oh, the Gen X and millennials are going to be getting thumb transplants or thumb replacements. Well, I can't think of a good transition. So want to get into the episode? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can just have one where we just start talking about our, our subject. So today we're going to talk about labor union activist and chemical technician Karen Gay Silkwood. Born on February 19, 1946, Karen grew up in Nederland, Texas, amongst the belching oil refineries that dotted the Gulf Coast. She was a very good student with a keen social conscience and a habit of correcting her teachers when they aired. Karen became interested in the promise of a clean energy alternative to the filthy oil business in high school. She took a six-week course on radiation and enrolled in advanced chemistry her senior year. When she graduated, she enrolled in Lamar College, now Lamar University, in nearby Beaumont, where she hoped to study nuclear physics and become a lab analyst. But Karen's studies were interrupted when she met and later married William Meadows in 1965. The couple had three children in quick succession, but fed up with Meadows' financial carelessness and infidelity, Karen filed for divorce in 1972. In August of that year, she and the children moved to Oklahoma City for a fresh start, and for her, a return to her earlier aspirations. Karen landed a job as a lab technician at one of the huge players in nuclear energy, Care McGee which mined uranium around the world and used it to produce plutonium, a key component for nuclear weapons and also nuclear power plants. She worked at their plutonium fuels production plant in Crescent, Oklahoma. But within months, Karen was on the picket line with the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, also known as OCAW Local 5283 which was demanding higher wages, safer conditions, and more training for its staff. Care McGee responded with an offer that was worse than the original contract and soon brought in scabs who were woefully inexperienced and unprepared. The strike went on for 10 weeks. The striking workers whose jobs had not been lost to scabs returned to work in January 1973 reluctantly signing a new contract that stripped away many of their previous rights, including certain protections against arbitrary firings and reassignments. A few weeks later, a fire spontaneously erupted as a worker emptied plutonium waste, shooting radioactive dust into the air. Seven workers were in the vicinity and breathed in the fumes, but Care McGee supervisors waited a day before calling in a physician. Four days later, the seven workers still had not been tested for contamination in their lungs. Karen was outraged. Then, in July 1974, Karen became contaminated with plutonium herself. She decided to funnel her outrage and considerable intensity into the union. The following month, she ran for one of the union's three steering committee seats and was elected the first woman in that position at the Kermagee plant. She was tasked with investigating health and safety issues, and she soon discovered what she believed to be numerous violations of health regulations, including exposures of workers to contamination, faulty respiratory equipment, and improper storage of samples. Anti-company sentiment ran high, but few workers were up for an all-out fight. Turnover was high as union activity and formal complaints to the Atomic Energy Commission resulted in harassment and retaliation by the company. Some employees took to making anonymous complaints and phoning in tips to environmental groups and news agencies. But Care McGee's reach was long. They had lobbyists and lawyers who could spin and sweep, intimidate and pay off. But Karen was still the same person who had boldly corrected her high school teachers and spoken up when others were cowed. With new contract negotiations on the horizon, Karen began interviewing dozens and dozens of Care McGee employees, past and present. 
many of them who didn't even know that plutonium could cause cancer. She began documenting the history of accidents and incidents and was prepared to present the company with a formal list of grievances. In September, she and the other two members of the Union Steering Committee flew to Washington, D.C. to meet with OCAW International, the main group um, related to her union. While they were there, they laid out their case against Kara McGee. Together, Karen and the union officials went directly to the Atomic Energy Commission offices, where they recorded all the details that the steering committee had brought forward. The Atomic Energy Commission promised to investigate formally. On October 10th, two of the country's leading plutonium experts arrived in Oklahoma City to conduct crash courses for Kara McGee's plutonium workers at the behest of OCAW International. During one of these sessions, Karen and 72 other workers who had been exposed to internal plutonium contamination at the plant over the previous four years were shocked to learn that their chances of developing cancer at some point in their life was, quote, disturbingly high. According to them, the Atomic Energy Commission plutonium exposure guidelines were bullshit. There was no safe exposure level. This crystallized Karen's resolve to take Kara McGee down. She began surreptitiously collecting evidence, staying late at work and digging through files. According to reports from her colleagues in the union, by the end of October, Karen had compiled an extensive dossier that she kept with her at all times in a manila folder. It was also around this time that Karen started suffering from anxiety and insomnia. She received a prescription for sleeping pills and pushed on. But on the evening of November 5th, Karen was again contaminated with plutonium, this time on her hands. She had been working in a glove box, which is a sealed container designed to protect workers from direct contact with radioactive materials. She was grinding and polishing plutonium pellets that would be used in fuel rods. Around 6.30 that evening, she decided to monitor herself for alpha activity with the detector that was mounted on the glove box. The right side of her body read 20,000 disintegrations per minute, or about 9 nanocuries, mostly on the right sleeve and shoulder of her coveralls. She was taken to the plant's health physics office where she was given a test called a nasal swipe. This test measures a person's exposure to airborne plutonium, but might also measure plutonium that got on a person's nose from their hands. The swipe showed an activity of 160 disintegrations per minute, which is a modest positive result. The two gloves in the glove box she had been using were replaced. Strangely though, the gloves were found to have plutonium on the surfaces of the gloves that were in contact with her hands, not on the opposite side where you would expect them, but no leaks were found in the gloves. No plutonium was found on the surfaces in the room where she had been working, and filter papers from the two air monitors in the room showed that there was no significant plutonium in the air. By 9 p.m. that night, her cleanup had been completed, and as a precautionary measure, Karen was instructed to collect all of her urine and feces for five days so plutonium measurements could be taken. She returned to the laboratory and worked until about 1 a.m., but she did no further work in the glove boxes. As she left the plant, she monitored herself and found nothing. She arrived at work at 7.30 the following day and began by examining metallographic prints and performing paperwork for an hour. As she left the lab to attend a meeting, she tested herself again. Although she had not worked at the glove box that morning, the detector registered alpha activity on her hands. Health physics staff found more activity on her right forearm and the right side of her neck and face. The health staff again decontaminated her, and at her request, a technician checked her locker and car with an alpha detector. No activity was found. On November 7th, Karen reported to the health physics office at about 8 in the morning with her bioassay kit containing four urine samples and one fecal sample. A nasal swipe was also taken, which found significant levels of alpha activity. 
a preliminary examination of her bioassay samples showed extremely high levels of activity. Her locker and car were checked again, and essentially no alpha activity was found. Following her cleanup, the Carmegie Health physicist accompanied her to her apartment, which she shared with another lab analyst, Sherry Dusty Ellis. The apartment was surveyed and significant levels of activity were found in the bathroom and kitchen, and lower levels of activity were found in other rooms. In the bathroom, activity was found on the toilet seat, on the floor mat, and on the floor. In the kitchen, they found activity on a package of bologna and cheese in the refrigerator, on the cabinet, on the floor, on the stove sides, and on a package of chicken. In the bedroom, activity was also detected on the pillowcases and on the bed sheets. However, the Atomic Energy Commission estimated that the total amount of plutonium in the apartment was no more than 300 micrograms. No plutonium was found outside the apartment. Karen's roommate was found to have two areas of low-level activity on her, so they were both returned to the plant where Dusty was cleaned up. When asked how the alpha activity got into her apartment, Karen said that when she produced a urine sample that morning, she had spilled some. She wiped off the container and the bathroom floor with tissue and disposed of the tissue in the toilet. The amount of plutonium at the apartment raised concern, obviously. Care McGee arranged for Karen, Dusty, and Karen's boyfriend to go to Los Alamos, New Mexico for testing. On November 11th, the trio met with the head of the laboratory health division, and he explained that all of their urine and feces would be collected and that several whole body and lung counts would be taken. They would also be monitored for external activity. Between October 22nd and November 6th, the findings showed high levels of activity had been found in four of the urine samples that Karen had collected at home. The next day, the doctor informed Dusty and Karen's boyfriend that their tests showed a small but insignificant amount of plutonium in their bodies. Karen, on the other hand, had 0.34 nanocuries of americium-241, a gamma-emitting daughter of plutonium-241 in her lungs. Based on the amount of americium, he estimated that Karen had about six or seven nanocuries of plutonium-239 in her lungs, or less than half the maximum permissible lung burden for workers. The lung burden that, remember, we talked about before, the union-hired physicist had said was complete bullshit? Well, the doctor at Los Alamos reassured Karen that based upon his experience with workers that had much larger amounts of plutonium in their bodies, she should not be concerned about developing cancer or dying from radiation poisoning. Karen wondered whether the plutonium would affect her ability to have children or cause her children to be deformed. He reassured her that she could have normal children. The trio then returned to Oklahoma City on November 12th. Karen and Dusty reported for work the next day but they were restricted from further radiation work. After work that night, Karen went to a union meeting in Crescent, Oklahoma. At the end of the meeting, at about 7 p.m., she left alone in her car, bound for a meeting with New York Times reporter David Burnham. A fellow union member later swore in an affidavit that Karen was carrying a manila folder an inch thick with papers which she told the union member contained proof that quality control records were being falsified at Carmagee. At 8.05 that night, the Oklahoma State Highway Patrol was notified of a single car accident seven miles south of Crescent. The driver, Karen Gay Silkwood, age 28, was dead at the scene from multiple injuries. An Oklahoma State trooper who investigated the accident reported that her death was a result of a classic one-car sleeping driver accident. Later, blood tests performed as part of the autopsy showed that her blood had 0.35 milligrams of methoqualone per 100 milliliters at the time of her death. That amount is almost twice the recommended dosage for inducing drowsiness. About 50 milligrams of undissolved methoqualone remained in her stomach. At the request of the Atomic Energy Commission and the Oklahoma State Medical Examiner, who was concerned about performing an autopsy on someone reportedly contaminated with plutonium, 
A team from Los Alamos was sent to make radiation measurements and assist in the autopsy. Dr. Voltz, the doctor who had examined Karen less than a week before, Dr. Michael Stewart, Alan Valentine, and James Lawrence comprised the team. The autopsy was performed November 14, 1974, at the University Hospital in Oklahoma City. Appropriate specimens were collected, preserved, and retained. At the request of the coroner and the Atomic Energy Commission, certain organs and bone specimens were removed, packaged, frozen, and brought back to Los Alamos for analysis of their plutonium content. Because Karen had been exposed to plutonium and had undergone in vivo plutonium measurements, her tissue was also used in the Los Alamos Tissue Analysis Program to determine her actual plutonium body burden, the distribution of plutonium between different organs of her body, and the distribution within her lung. On November 15th, small samples of the liver, lung, stomach, GI tract, and bone were selected and analyzed. The test showed that there were 3.2 nanocuries in the liver, 4.5 nanocuries in the lungs, and a little more than 7.7 nanocuries in her whole body. These measurements agreed with the in vivo measurements made before her death. There was no significant deposition of plutonium in any other tissues, including the skeleton. The highest concentrations measured were in the contents of the GI tract. This demonstrated that she had ingested plutonium prior to her death. With the exception of the left lung, the remaining unanalyzed tissues were repackaged and kept frozen until it was determined whether or not additional analysis were required. The left lung was thawed, inflated with dry nitrogen until it was approximately the size that it would have been in the chest, and refrozen in that configuration. It was packed in an insulated shipping container in dry ice and sent to the lung counting facility at the Los Alamos Health Research Laboratory. The data were then compared with the in vivo measurements made prior to her death. As expected, without the ribs and associated muscle, the results for the left lung measured postmortem were about 50% higher, but not inconsistent with the in vivo results. Further testing revealed that the plutonium concentrations in the inner and outer parts of Karen's lung were about equal, in stark contrast with other cases examined under the tissue analysis program, in which the concentration in the outer part of the lung was higher than in the inner part. Also, the concentration of plutonium in her lung was about six times greater than that in the lymph nodes. In a typical case, that ratio would be about 0.1. Both of these findings indicated that she had received a very recent exposure, likely in the 30 days prior to her death. The saga of Karen Silkwood continued for years after her death. Her estate filed a civil suit against Care McGee for alleged inadequate health and safety program that led to Karen's exposures. The first trial ended in 1979 with the jury awarding Karen's estate five times what her lawyer had asked for at $10.5 million for personal injury and punitive damages. This award was reversed later by the Federal Court of Appeals in Denver, Colorado, which awarded $5,000 for the personal property she had lost during the cleanup of her apartment. In 1986, 12 years after her death, the suit was headed for retrial when it was finally settled out of court for $1.3 million. The Care McGee nuclear fuel plants closed in 1975. But today, almost 50 years after her death, her children are left with so many unanswered questions. A private investigator hired by Karen's family found that there were two dents on the rear bumper of her car, indicating that contrary to the official report, Karen may have been run off the road by another car. There were also skid marks on the pavement near the accident, also contradicting a finding that she had fallen asleep at the wheel. And most damningly, the inch-thick dossier Karen had with her to share with the New York Times reporter, not found at the scene, and never in all these years recovered. Ugh. Yeah. I believe in the conspiracy. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. I mean, there's just too many things that don't add up, and... I mean, I could have gone on and on and on about all the corrupt bullshit that this company was up to around this time and other areas of their business, 
but they were just bad. They were very bad. They were up to a lot of no good. Yeah, I believe it a million percent. I mean, we see time and time and time and time and time again, corporations will do anything. Yeah. I mean, I've joked about it. Like, if Walmart could make an extra $10,000, they'd have me killed. Like, I, it's hard to believe in a singular good business. And then when you get into things like this, like plutonium, nuclear energy, cutting costs, government, fallout, like, I, I just believe she was killed. For sure. I mean, and there's so much more to this story, you know, and it's all out there if you really want to dig deep, but you have to actually do quite a bit of digging. I had to go back into the archives for a lot of this information. And there are a few really good articles that came out in the 70s, closer to the time of when this all went down. Um, and they're linked in the in the episode notes that I pulled from heavily. Because if you just go to Wikipedia, there's a ton of, I mean, most of this information is just not there. But union busting and, you know, accusations that they were actually shady as fuck with government contracts and they were ultimately closed down not because of what they did to Karen and the other workers at this factory they were closed down I think because they they screwed over some companies in the government who were buying their plutonium rods mm-hmm. so yeah it's just it's really gross but you know it was really interesting to dig into her life more because you know I think this is something that a lot of younger folks will know nothing about, but I definitely knew about it, but didn't know all of these details, didn't know much about her as a person. And I think that it's pretty well documented that the company did a lot to really malign her reputation even after her death. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot there, but um, really interesting and sad because, you know, we've had several that fall into this category where as much interest as there may be to right the wrong that was done in the investigation, there's nothing that can be done when evidence isn't collected at the time. Yeah. And when it's like obstructed through the entire process, maybe we'll cover it in an episode, but the thing where you're talking about shady government contracts, like the Challenger explosion happened because those contracts went through Warren Jeffs. And his Mormon fundamentalist Mormon cult that made the faulty O-rings. Like, there are so many. Yeah. Yeah, it it is fascinating. I I was actually listening to podcasts and reading about Warren Jeffs, and that's how I got that bit. But it's like, yeah, there's tons of government contracts with incredibly shady organizations. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, I, I... don't know that much about nuclear physics, believe it or not. What? Um, <laughs> but what I learned in reading about this is that um, plutonium is a naturally occurring element, but it's very, very rare. It's extremely rare in it to be found naturally. But it can be produced, and that's what the Manhattan Project was about. And when you produce it, you can actually produce it infinitely so it can be made forever and if you start with x amount you can create more without depleting the original amount and so it's like with a with a thing like this care mcgee could have made money hand over fist doing things right so why Mm -hmm. i mean the greed that it takes to cut corners on safety and you know, bust unions for what? To make more, like, insane amounts? I I mean, I just don't understand that kind of greed, and it makes me so angry that Look at Amazon. Yeah, I know. I know. I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. Well, I don't go too deep, but I I scratch the surface of conspiracy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, listener, if you're interested... It goes deep, deep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But adding into the pop culture side, it's kind of a small but mighty collection. Mm -hmm. So first I started with nonfiction books. And of course, there's a number of true crime novels about the case. 
But the most popular is probably 1981's The Killing of Karen Silkwood, the story behind the Kerr-McKee plutonium case. And that was by American journalist, teacher, and author Richard Rashke. And then that book was re-released in the year 2000 with an added preface and three short chapters that explore what's been learned about the Silkwood case since the book's original publication. Mm. And that explains what happened to the various folks through, I mean, the drama. I mean, it's a real-life event. Mm -hmm. And it discusses the long-term effects of the events around her death. So according to this book, officials investigating Silkwood's death and Kara McGee's operations received death threats. Mm -hmm. One of the investigators disappeared under mysterious circumstances. One of the witnesses committed suicide shortly before she was to testify against the Carmagee Corporation about what was allegedly happening at the plant. Can we put committed suicide in air quotes? Oh, yeah. Yes, 100%. Sorry, Ugh. not a visual medium. Air quotes here. <laughs> committed suicide. Rashke wrote that the Silkwood family's legal team were followed, threatened with violence, and physically assaulted. The author also suggested that the 20 kilograms or 44 pounds of plutonium that went missing from the plant had been stolen by a, quote, <laughs> secret mm-hmm. underground plutonium smuggling ring, end quote, mm-hmm. in which many government agencies, including the highest level of government and international intelligence agencies, so CIA, MI5, Massoud, and a shadowy group of Iranians were involved. Mm-hmm. All according to this book. So needless to say, conspiracies abound. Yeah. And the book was a success. And quick note, some conspiracies are real. <laughs> totally. I mean, that's what gives them their their oomph because sometimes they're factual. So this is a quote from a reviewer. Quote, Rashke's account of the massive documentation of the Silkwood case stands up to critical review. It will remind students of industrial relations of an earlier anti-union period, replete with examples of coercion, espionage, cover-ups, and illegal wiretapping. End quote. But I mean, an earlier anti-union period, as if we're in a, like, super heyday of unions? Yeah, but, you know... (laughs) Things change at a glacial pace, I suppose. I suppose. Moving over to fiction, one of the six interlocking stories in the groundbreaking novel and much less groundbreaking film, Cloud Atlas, Mm. (laughs) is inspired by this case. So in the story, a journalist named Louisa Ray, who's played by Halle Berry in the film, is investigating wrongdoing at a fictional nuclear plant with the help of whistleblower Isaac Sachs, played by Tom Hanks. In a meta-reference to Karen Silkwood's life and work, Ray survives a mysterious car crash orchestrated to assassinate her while Sachs is murdered by an airplane bomb. So, just disclosure, this is one of my favorite novels of all time. Mm. (laughs) And it sent me into a David Mitchell reading frenzy. (laughs) So Cloud Atlas is his third novel, and it was published in 2004, and it won the British Book Award Literary Fiction Award and the Richard and Judy Book of the Year Award. The year it was published, it was also shortlisted for the Booker Prize, Nebula Award for Best Novel, and Author C. Clarke Award, among other recognitions. Discussing the novel, uh, BBC's Keeley Oaks said that although the structure of the book could be challenging for readers, quote, David Mitchell has taken six wildly different stories and melded them into one fantastic and complex work, end quote. Kirkus Reviews called the book sheer storytelling brilliance, and Laura Miller of the New York Times compared it to the perfect crossword puzzle and that it was challenging to read but still fun, which... I agree. The first chapter is so difficult to get through, and then the book becomes incredible. (laughs) So in 2019, the novel was ranked ninth on The Guardian's list of 100 best books of the 21st century. Wow. In 2020, the book was recommended by Bill Gates as part of his summer reading list. And in 2022, the book was recommended by me to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But then uh, we have to move over to Cloud Atlas, the film. 
<laughs> which was released in 2012 and was written and directed by the Wachowskis of Matrix fame and Tom Tykwer. And interestingly, it was extremely polarizing, causing it to be mm. included in various best and worst films list. Uh, it currently has a 66% on Rotten Tomatoes, and film critic Roger Ebert gave the film four out of four stars and listed the film among his best of the year, saying, quote, One of the most ambitious films ever made. Even as I was watching Cloud Atlas the first time, I knew I would need to see it again. Now that I've seen it a second time, I know I'd like to see it a third. I think you'll want to see this daring and visionary film. I was never, ever bored by Cloud Atlas. On my second viewing, I gave up any attempt to work out the logical connection between the segments, stories, and characters. End quote. Conversely, Slant Magazine's Kayla Marsh called it a, quote, unique and totally unparalleled disaster. Mm. Its badness is fundamental, an essential aspect of the concept and its execution that I suspect is impossible to remedy or rectify, end quote. <laughs> Even still, it was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Original Score, it also received several nominations at the Saturn Awards, including Best Science Fiction Film and one for Best Editing and Best Makeup. I already mentioned Halle Berry and Tom Hanks, but the big cast didn't stop. It had Susan Sarandon, Hugo Weaving, Hugh Grant, Jim Broadbent, Ben Wishaw, and more. Mm. Even still, not a commercial success, overall losing money on its huge budget. A lot of criticism, a lot of pros, a lot of cons to that movie, so I don't wholeheartedly recommend it, but the book, yes. Yeah. Luckily for us, though, there's another movie to discuss. And that is the incredible, iconic 1983 American biographical drama, Silkwood. Directed by Mike Nichols, starring Meryl Streep, Cher, and Kurt Russell. The film was adapted from the book Who Killed Karen Silkwood by Rolling Stone writer and activist Howard Cohen, and the screenplay was written by Nora Ephron and Alice Arlen. So, heavy hitters. The film received extremely positive reviews and was a box office success, with particular attention focused on Nichols' direction and Streep's performance. At the 56th Academy Awards, Silkwood received five nominations in total, including Streep for Best Actress, Cher for Best Supporting Actress, and Nichols for Best Director. Though she didn't win, Cher did walk away with the Best Supporting Actress at the Golden Globes. Mm. The American Film Institute included Karen Silkwood as the number 47 hero in their AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains, and the film overall at number 66 at AFI's 100 Years, 100 Cheers. Mm, wow. And just an interesting bit of trivia. Arthur Hirsch and Larry Cano were the producers of the film and received executive producer credits. They began working on the movie while graduate film students at UCLA, and their involvement in the making of Silkwood set a precedent in the United States Supreme Court regarding the protection under the First Amendment of confidential sources for filmmakers, as is done with journalists. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. I mean, who would have guessed, especially, you know, folks, it's like, oh, this was a hit movie, Cher and Meryl Streep. But like that impact alone is kind of huge yeah. for, I mean, seeing the case, like understanding what happened to Karen, what she was killed for. I think this Supreme Court precedent to allow movies like this to have confidential sources is huge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, sticking with Roger Ebert, he also gave this <laughs> film four out of four stars, saying, quote, It's a little amazing that established movie stars like Streep, Russell, and Cher could disappear so completely into the everyday lives of these characters, end quote. Hmm. So, speaking about playing Karen in a 1983 interview, Merrill said, quote, Karen Silkwood has come to stand for so many things to so many people that I had to start all over again in trying to play her as a person, not a symbol. I really don't think we can know much about people after they're not here to tell us. All their real, real secrets die with them. If I die, 
No one will know what I was truly like. And that's the truth. End quote. Hmm. Which, damn. I don't know why, but that quote hit me. I mean, it's like, yeah, on one hand it's obvious, but it's like, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I even think about that, like, when my dad died, it was like, oh, there's so much information that will just never be known or shared. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember who said it. It's a like horrible paraphrasing, but it's like, I read a quote somewhere that was like, when a person dies, it's like the key is lost to a filing cabinet with mm-hmm. information that can never be opened again. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, something about that really stuck with me. And then as a homosexual man... I would be remiss to not talk more about Cher. (laughs) I think it's safe to say that Silkwood was a turning point in her acting career. In fact, in 1984, the New York Times ran an article titled, Cher Hoping Silkwood is Her Turning Point. And all these years later, we can happily say it was. (laughs) Mm. In that article, Cher was quoted as saying, quote, Most of the time, I couldn't even get interviewed for things, not even for TV movies, and I couldn't find an agent who would handle me for pictures alone. They would agree to take me, but what they really wanted was Las Vegas and that stuff. And so I'd be with someone for a couple months and nothing would happen and I'd have to move on. End quote. Hmm. But all that changed when Mike Nichols and Nora Ephron saw Cher in a stage production of Jimmy Dean. Nora recalled that Cher was so close to the part of Dolly, so Karen's friend, in that performance, it was as though she was auditioning with the script. Mm -hmm. And apparently Mike Nichols offered Cher the role, and she agreed to play it without even asking to see the script. Wow. And as Cher recalled, Mike called her two weeks later about the, quote, lesbian in the room. (laughs) So this is a (laughs) quote from her. She said, He said, I have to tell you something. This is a wonderful part. She's a lesbian, but she's a wonderful lesbian. I said, okay, fine. It doesn't bother me, (laughs) end quote. (laughs) But he was nervous because she accepted the part. She hadn't seen the script. She didn't know anything. And, you know, it was different times from today. And he was like having to break the news that her character was a lesbian. And, of course, gay icon Cher was like, yeah, "Yeah, whatever. Fine. So, again, that article asked if Silkwood would be the turning point in Cher's acting career, and it most certainly was. Without Silkwood, it's almost a guarantee we would not have had her in Mask, The Witches of Eastwick, her Academy Award-winning performance in Moonstruck, hashtag one of the best movies ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And if you aren't counting burlesque with Christina Aguilera or Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Those hey, can also now. go in hey, the best now. movies ever made. Hey, now. You don't, you don't talk trash about Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. I won't. <laughs> and I won't talk trash about burlesque, even though there's a legitimate case. Oh, I never saw that. <laughs> but needless to say, Cher's acting career, as well as her nearly 40-year friendship with Meryl Streep, are just two examples of the truly bizarre and unexpected ways something so terrible like this crime can produce unimaginable ripple effects. Like we said, all the way up to a Supreme Court decision that movies can keep anonymous sources. Yeah. It's incredible. So that's where I started like the the phrase I chose, small but mighty mm-hmm. pop culture impact of this. Yeah. And really the only thing that remains is what's going to come from it next. Yeah, totally. Well, and I wonder, you know, I I feel like this really birthed the whole subgenre of whistleblower movies. Mm, Probably. It doesn't feel outlandish to wonder, you know, would Aaron Brockovich exist, the movie, not the person, um, (laughs) if not for Silkwood? I mean, truly, who knows? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's absolutely horrendous what was done to her, and especially in the names of not just greed, but greed and cover-up. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, it's just, 
I don't know, this one really gets to me in a way that, you know, sometimes they do. And, and I think of her kids who never got to know her. I mean, they were still pretty young when this all happened, but there was just something inside of her, a drive to not back down and to see it through. But there's a part of me that thinks maybe it could be solved somehow. I don't know. I mean, like they found paint flecks on the bumper and I have to think that they had, you know, her family and estate had a private investigator. Those had to have been stored somewhere. Like maybe, I don't know, maybe it is solvable. I would love it. But I think, I think the only possible way if we get into like the deep conspiracies of government would be like deathbed confessions. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I mean, and I didn't see this remarked upon anywhere, but I mean, had they poisoned her? You know, I I didn't read any sources that kind of came out and connected those dots, but it seems pretty clear that someone had poisoned her too, right? Yeah, at the very least, like, drugging. Like, so maybe the pills wouldn't have killed her, but, like, getting her into a state that could lead to Mm -hmm. a miss, not diagnosis, but maybe diagnosis, uh, of falling asleep at the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, dosed her. But I mean, also the plutonium, like none of her contaminations were ever explained. Yeah. There's just something. Uh, I mean, a lot of somethings in this case. It's not yeah. just one thing that's amiss. And there have to be people who know what happened. There just have to be. That's like the one piece of my hope of an afterlife if that exists is that we have the ability to like look at these types of things and jfk and marilyn monroe and just like almost like a database of like we can look up and see yeah 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 Uh, this is a deep dark twisty one but I'm I'm so glad we covered it. I was chatting with a friend who had never heard of this case. Mm. And I only knew about it because of the movie with Cher. Right. Like, and I read Cloud Atlas and like, I mean, clearly huge fan. Never put it together that this was based on her, even though it's like really in your face. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those that, you know, had a moment in time where it was covered quite a bit and then just faded away. I think it's time for this one to come back. And the 50th anniversary, you know, is only two years away. So maybe some additional media coverage and her kids, you know, talking to the press will reinvigorate the interest, shake some things loose. And then hopefully taking like a legitimate investigation into the conspiracy Absolutely. I mean, I feel like enough time has passed, enough people have died that it might be possible to learn new information. Should we do it? Should we be the investigators? I think that we should. This would make a good long series. We've talked about doing that. I think this one would would be a really interesting one. And then I could actually know about nuclear physics. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And if you have well, any tips, let us know. <laughs> yeah, tips, insider information, links to good Reddit conspiracy threads. Send them our oh way. Oh my God, totally, totally. Those are kind of my favorites. Well, with that, listeners, we appreciate the hell out of you. abs fucking lootly Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production. Bye.